Good morning. I'm going to put my glasses on. Oh, I can't see a thing. So it's a new year. It's a really good time for us to, to, to start off in something new and to dream big for the year. Um, and today, me and Dan, we're going to tag team and we're going to be sharing about extravagant freedom. So really glad sharing this, this with Dan. Really good mate of mine. And what was really encouraging to both of us, we kind of thought, what are we going to do today? Went away and thought about it separately. We basically almost came to the same thing from different angles. And it's been a lot of the theme here this morning. So we really want to share about sonship, being key to freedom, and basically how that sets us free from fear. And that's kind of at the root of things. But I'm going to do more like a high-level view. When we go anywhere on a journey, I always want to get the map out. When I go to a new city, I always want to see the plan of the city. I just love the high-level view. And Dan's going to do something which is more about the heart of the Father line behind that. So, we just also want to put a plug, an extra plug in. This is talking about extravagant freedom. At the end of this month, there's an amazing course which runs, which is called Freedom in Christ. It's been mentioned quite a lot already, but that's really talking about the nitty gritty about how God wants to equip you to be free. Um, and so, it's, it's yeah, if you want to follow up on this, that's a really good way to do it. And you can actually go into a lot more depth about about how you can get set free. So. When we've been asked to do this, I felt God almost immediately hired a phrase from Romans 8, where Paul rejoices in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And Dan, I think, is going to read the wider passage. Great. So, Romans 8, verse 14. We're going to start there. If I can find it. (laughs) For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved now. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So when I, when I first got this, um, this passage about the, fri- the first, the freedom of the glory of the children of God, I thought, yes, it's all about freedom and glory. And then I read the passage and it's like, it's about suffering. And it's about the strains of this, the creation and about the fact that this world's still fallen. And 
the richest treasure of the faith often lie where we actually see things in tension. And that's actually where we sometimes get the greatest treasures. I mean, that's the, the cross. When Jesus is his moment of total defeat, apparently, that's where the moment of total victory comes. And this passage really goes to the heart of the battle we all face day to day. The resurrection of life with Jesus rising up on the inside. And we all experience that, especially as you grow more as a Christian. So there's more and more of life bubbling up inside you. And there's a daily conflict which doesn't go away. I've been a Christian for 30 years, hasn't gone yet. In fact, sometimes it seems to intensify. A daily conflict with a fallen world and our old fallen natures. So, you know, Jesus dies on the cross and, when he, and, and rises from the dead and he ascends into heaven and he wins total victory. But he doesn't really win it for himself because he already had it. He actually won it for us. And when you've become a Christian, you've actually been put inside Christ and he's given you the victory and he's put his spirit inside you and he has set you free. And yet, we're left in a fallen world because he's coming back. And until he comes back, basically, there's still the same stuff going on in the world. You know, the same strains and tensions, the same wars, sickness, disease. It's all around us. And we experience day to day, we can't actually escape it we can find that the life of God's inside us that's greater than that. But there's still that tension all around us. He hasn't yet wrapped it all up and we're awaiting his second coming. As Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation or trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So we've been given this freedom in the context of ongoing pain and suffering and wrestling with the challenges of living in a fallen world. And that's not just as, uh, sort of natural, natural disasters, accidents and the like. Basically, in the, it, we, we've all heard the world, the, the flesh and the devil. Actually, the Bible verse in Ephesians where it talks about this, it actually lists it in a different order. The world, the devil and the flesh. So the world, what's the world? The world is like the culture around us, really. It's the, it's the, the philosophies, the religions, um, the culture around us that either aggressively, we don't get much of that, or passive-aggressively, we get a lot of passive aggression, if you like, towards, towards our faith because the, we live in a culture where there's almost like a militant relativism. You can believe whatever you like as long as you don't believe that there's something that's 100% true. And uh, that's, that's, that's the kind of thing we face on a daily basis. And the world has basically been seeded with that kind of stuff by the devil. As a, as a fallen angel, he's defeated. Jesus has put him under his feet, but he still works through the lie. He's not omnipresent. It's actually through his minions, uh, the, the other fallen angels. But nevertheless, they are, they are at work in, in people's lives, and they seek to influence us as well. And maybe the worst of all is the fifth column on the inside. There's like our old nature, our old ways of thinking, our old uh, the passions and lusts that are still there that we would pursue even though they destroy us. There's all that kind of stuff going on. And they're so powerful that we can't actually overcome in our own strength. So, yeah, thank you, Lord, that you actually live inside us. And you give us the grace that we need to overcome these things. And Lord, we just want to just open up our lives to you more. We just, we just recognise how much we need you. And Lord, we just want to put our trust in you. So, much often the church has rightly been keen to declare that God is at work here and now. But actually it's really important that we keep this eternal perspective. Because, because of all this that's going on, basically it's, there is a war going on and we're in the middle of it. And uh, things don't always work out the way we think it should. Prayers don't always get answered in the time frame we think they should. 
And you know what? That's real biblical experience. It's, maybe you're going through, you're thinking, oh, how, how come I'm the one who can't get it sorted out? We're all in this. And we're all experiencing better. And there's, there's no one here who's a failure just because you're at war. That's normal. And that's, that's an experience that basically having the eternal perspective is just crucial. Sometimes that's going to be what we hold on to. The fact that in eternity, everything is sorted out. So I'm confident it's the people. Someone says you're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Actually, if you look through history, it's the people who've had their minds on eternal things who have actually borne the most fruit because they've had their eyes on the great reward, the pearl of price that can't be taken away. So, and uh, yeah, I was going to talk about the psalmist, but I'm going to run out of time. But basically, the psalmists get real with God, and there's a great freedom. Another freedom we have is that we get to be real with God. We get to pour our hearts out before Him. And that's when we do that, when we're honest with him, that's when he can actually come in and uh, basically change our perspectives like he did for the psalmists. But um, it says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And it's, um, yeah, we've, oh, sorry, I'm jumping a page here. <laughs> yeah, God's taking us from glory to glory. And we start from the same work of Jesus. We know Jesus is coming back, but in between there's a journey. And that journey is described as being taken from glory to glory. And the reason that can happen is because in the midst of all this, it says, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. So God is in the midst of us. Individually and corporately, there is one who's in us who's greater than the one who's in the world. And we've received the Holy Spirit in earnest of our full inheritance. And I, I love this, the amplified version of this says, In him you also have heard the word of truth, the glad tidings of your salvation, and have believed in, adhered, and relied on him, were stamped with the seal of a long-promised Holy Spirit. That Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance, the first fruits the pledge and foretaste, the down payment on our heritage in anticipation of its full redemption and our acquiring complete possession of it to the praise of his glory. So it says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he's become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So in the midst of a desert, we've got a well and we get to draw from that. And maybe we need to keep drawing from it because it's still a desert out there, but we get to draw from the wells of salvation. And Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So we've got access to an eternal kingdom life and we get to bring it into now. And that's a prophetic action that we, we take. There's something coming that Jesus won 2,000 years ago. And we get to bring it into now. We get to release the flow of the Spirit. Just like the, the, in the, the stream flowing out the temple in Ezekiel 47, bringing life and healing to the Dead Sea and the, the, the trees growing alongside it, bringing healing to the nations. And we get to access the throne of grace and mercy. And we get to be those who call out to God, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. And when we do, as we persevere, he answers our prayers. So the Lord puts here in the midst of the fallen world, he did it because he wants his glory to fill the earth. 
it says in 2 Corinthians, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, man fell, and the image of God was broken. In Christ, the image has been restored, and we, we're called to reflect the glory of the Lord. That's in 10 minutes. <laughs> we're called to reflect the glory of the Lord. And that actually leads us to one really practical thing. How do we reflect the glory of the Lord? Well, the answer is we've got to reflect him. In other words, we need to be face-to-face with the glory of God. In fact, when it talks about the presence of God, most of the time the word in the Bible that is translated is the face of God. So as we're talking about we want more of the presence of God, what we're saying is we want more of the face of God. And when we get the face of God, we reflect into the world in a way that probably is beyond our... The, the glory of God is something that when it comes, you don't have a grid for it. The glory of God is something that when you encounter, you just think, this is beyond anything I've conceived of. When we reflect that to the world, they will see something in us that is not our glory, but as it says in Isaiah, arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. And that's what we really want. We, it's not more of us, it's more of the reflected glory of God. So we're called to fight the good fight of faith because he's in us. We become the light of the world and it says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. And I like that song when it looks like I'm, I'm surrounded, I'm surrounded by you which really echoes that story about Elisha being surrounded by an army. And it says, Alas, my master, what shall I do? And he's, Elisha says, Do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and he said, Lord, please open his eyes so he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold the mountain was full of chariots and fire all around Elisha. And basically God's made us not just to be free but to be freedom fighters. So God actually wants us to be the ones who set other people free. So first we need to get free. And uh, this is where I actually watched a few Aragorn at the Black Gate saying, you know, is this not, the, is this not, is it, is, it is not this day. This day we fight all. William Wallace, tell our they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And I'm not doing a Scottish accent. Or Churchill, yeah, we'll fight them on the beaches. We shall never surrender. We sort of think of these speeches. But that's how God's speaking to us. He wants to stir in us some, a militancy about not only taking our own freedom, but actually taking that freedom out to those who don't yet have it. And there's a biblical version of the same thing. Nehemiah says, looking around at all the enemies around them as they're building the walls. That was great. We had Nehemiah mentioned this morning. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. So God wants us to break out of a siege mentality. Finally, that means God wants us to get equipped. And I just felt, I'm going to speed this bit up, but I feel like a bit like a scene from a Hollywood blockbuster you know, they're under the cosh all the way through the film and it's adversity and things going wrong. And then finally you come into the final showdown and they get into the armoury or whatever it is and they get kitted out with everything they need and they go out. And I just feel that that's what God wants to do for us. He actually wants to release us to be freedom fighters and to set others free. And that means getting free ourselves first. So first and foremost, let God do that for you. God wants to set you free and he wants to take you through a season of being set free. Get equipped by other people ministering to you 
And specifically, just really like to encourage you to get, if, if, if you feel, I need more freedom, get on the Freedom of Christ, in Christ course, because that's where, it's actually, I was going to say something about, but this is like the DNA of the church. When I first joined this church 30 years ago, the DNA of the church was entering your inheritance and God releasing you to do that. And I just feel like God wants to do that again. So, I'm going to hand over to Dan. It's a high level of you. Hope it gives some context. I uh, hope I left Dan enough time. Great. So, um, while I was preparing for this, I was reminded of a story of when I was seven years old. And <clears throat> I actually haven't told Will about this. <laughs> um, I was in Africa, uh, as in Malawi. My parents were mis- missionaries. And we lived out in the sticks, out in the bush, as they say. And there's no light pollution. It's completely dark when it's night. And this particular night, we're traveling home in a Toyota pickup. That's the kind of thing you have to drive out there because the roads are really bumpy. And we're traveling home. We're approaching home. And outside where our home is, is this kind of space where people would gather, hang out, old people, kids would play. But on this particular night, we were approaching. It was so dark. My dad's headlights were on. My dad was driving. My mum was in the front. My sisters and I were in the back. And suddenly, as we began to pull up, there was this banging on the glass. Bang, bang, bang. And uh, these guys, these men were like, turn off the lights, turn off the lights. And my dad, not wanting to run anyone over, kept them on. And they suddenly began to click what was going on. They said to the kids in the back, hide your eyes, don't look out the windows. And we did anyway. <laughs> what we saw was a monster, a dragon. It was a puppet. And it's like one of those Chinese kind of dragons that men kind of like kind of go inside and like dance around in. And uh, it looked pretty flimsy in the, in the headlights. But there was all these kids there as well. And these men were dressed up in this dragon trying to scare these kids on the witch doc, local witch doctor's kind of orders. They were trying to create fear in these kids. And it just, it's just kind of a really good story that helps communicate what it means to have uh, truth exposed to us, the reality of what's really going on. And, um, yeah, I just wanted to share that. I want to also talk about the parable of the prodigal son. Does anyone know the parable of the prodigal son? Yeah? Great. <laughs> so the basic story is a son goes up to the father, says, I want my inheritance now. Show me the money. And this father says, okay. The son ships out, wastes all his money, returns home. The father receives him back in. And there's a party. And the older son gets quite envious. That's how we kind of understand the story, right? But there's so much more to this story. And often we kind of miss the cultural dynamics that are going on sometimes. And Jesus, when he's telling parables, when he's telling stories, is always addressing uh, the culture of the day. So when people are listening to him, it's almost like watching a soap on TV. Did that really happen? 
And in this story, it's just the same. So I just want to kind of share that story as a kind of an example of what it means to actually enter into sonship. And it's just been so good hearing all the kind of prophetic words this morning. Um, so the word prodigal actually means wasteful. But there's also a positive sense to that word, and it means extravagant. So the, the parable of the prodigal son isn't just about the wasteful son, or sons, plural, but also extravagant father. And I want to kind of dive into why they're wasteful and why the father is extravagant. So both sons actually are saying, show me the money. And the younger son initiates, he goes up to the father. And in that culture, when the son goes up to the father and asks for his share of the inheritance, he's actually, (laughs) it's a massive affront. It's basically saying, I wish you were dead. And the oldest son also receives his share. The youngest son gets one third, the oldest son gets two thirds. And then the father is meant to live off the profits of the estate. And the younger son sells his share of the estate. So if the, the first request wasn't uh, you know, enough of a slap in the face, the, what he does in, in selling up and moving away is, is nasty, really. But the father, in his love, permits it to happen. And he says yes. It's amazing. God's the same way. He'll give us what we want. If we want to know him, he's ready to receive us. If we don't want to know him, he's not going to push himself on you. He's not going to force the relationship. He'll woo you, but he won't force the relationship. Both sons are distant. So, obviously, one son enters a whole different culture, goes to a different land, it's broken. It's like the world that Will was describing. There's famine. There's pigs unclean for a Jew. Hearing that, be like, what? <laughs> and it's unholy. Um, apparently, the, the food that the pigs were eating was full of thorns. And so the older son lives also far from the father. He's in close proximity, but he's not in relationship. Both hearts are far away. Both sons are actually believing a lie. Will said, the enemy, the devil, uses lies. So they're both believing a lie. They have a a wrong view of themselves as slaves. So the younger son, on returning back home, he's got this whole kind of thing rehearsed in his mind. I'm going to be a hired servant. I'm going to get this money back. Now, a hired servant is not like a bond servant. A bond servant is someone who's part of the family. A hired servant can be dropped at a moment's notice. And so he, as he go, goes back home to the father, he's positioning himself really as a slave. And the older son also thinks of himself as a slave. When the party ultimately is thrown for the younger son, there is this um, reaction from the older brother. And he says... All these years, I've been slaving for you. 
both sons are actually living in fear. Both sons desire for an inheritance and authority outside of their kind of father's boundaries and timing demonstrate that. They're living in the flesh. They're in sin. Both are trying to fix the wrong view that they have of themselves as slaves. They've missed out, they feel. They're orphans. They're victims of lack. So, that's the story of the sons. What about the father? (laughs) So, one thing that we need to know about this story is that because of what the younger son had done, his rejection of the father, on returning back to the community, they would have beaten him up. The community would have taken a hold of him, mocked him, and probably uh, he'd have been close to death. That's how it works. I've seen that happen, sadly, uh, in, in Africa. It's not a pretty sight. And the father is on the edge of the community. He sees the son approaching, and he runs to the son. He runs to the son before anyone else can get to him. Now, this is crazy because in that culture, this man, this father, would not do that. You just don't do that. It's like the equivalent of Queen Elizabeth running to Prince Charles, okay? It just looks like complete foolishness and it undermines any respect that he might have. And he's willing to kind of put himself in that position of uh, embarrassment, really, to restore relationship with the son. It's incredible. And on meeting the son, he embraces him, kisses him publicly in front of the whole community, saying, look, this guy's back in my family. And then we see true repentance. It's no longer that rehearsed spiel about being a hired servant. But suddenly, the son's kind of eyes are opened to the reality, to the real problem. It's not about the money. (laughs) It's about relationship. He says, I'm unworthy. I've sinned against heaven and before you. Now, the next response of the father is to give the son a new wardrobe. (laughs) And he, you know, the son's probably there in his rags. He's done a long travel. He's been feeding pigs. It's probably muddy. The, The clothes are probably hanging off him. And the father says, I'm putting my robe on you. My robe of right relationship. Restored relationship. Right living. Righteousness. He then puts a ring on his finger. You are part of my family, but it's also a mark of authority. Your authority is regained. And then he puts sandals on his feet. (laughs) If you're into shoes, this is a good thing. If the son still has any kind of more feeling of being a slave, this is an answer to that problem. Slaves don't wear shoes. So he's given sandals. He's now a son, not a servant. And then we know there's a celebration. 
there's a party. The father throws his party because he's in joy because he's found the lost son. <laughs> he's come back and he's reconciled and it's public. And, you know, all these things that I've just listed there in, of the father's response are exactly what Jesus does for us. Jesus' own actions at the cross. Jesus ran the gauntlet for us, just like the Father. We didn't have to make that journey, but Jesus did it for us. He takes the punishment, the action of dying on the cross. <laughs> it's foolishness to the world, but at, it, at that scene, there's public forgiveness and acceptance. You know, he attributes, Jesus gives us that right living. There's that swap of shame for righteousness. And then Jesus sends his spirit, which which testifies, like we've read in Romans, that we're his sons. (laughs) And he celebrates over us. And so really there's like two ways to live. We can live as slaves or in fear, or we can live as sons in extravagant freedom. And so Jesus has the answer to the world, the flesh, the devil, and the fear. To the world, he says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. To the flesh, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. To the devil, he says, you're disarmed and exposed. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. And to fear, he says, whoever abides in love abides in God, and God in him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear involves punishment. So God has all the answers. (laughs) Isn't that really comforting? It's good, isn't it? That doesn't mean it will be easy. And I don't really want to minimize the things you're going through. We all go through different things, suffering, like we read earlier in Romans 8, this present suffering. But it isn't from God. But he is able to use it. And he moves us from being victims to overcomers. And he's able to shine through your painful moments. And he he uses suffering to bring us into maturity. I just want to tell a very quick story. Um, So I've had my house on the market for probably about just over, well, just under two years. And the the reason I put it on the market was because I had uh, a naughty (laughs) neighbour. And basically, there's a boundary issue. Um, I put up a new fence, and my neighbor said, I've got right of access over your land. I was like, oh, he didn't. And he got very violent, or very aggressive, sorry. And I had to call the police out. And at that point, I was in fear. (laughs) It wasn't a nice situation. It was horrible. Maybe you can identify. But, I began to pray. And God changed the situation around. 
God showed me that I had to respond in love. You know, just like Jesus ran the gauntlet and the father ran the gauntlet for the younger son, we too, in our suffering, can be like Jesus and run the gauntlet. Our response to people when they are in fear allows them to come closer if it's the right response. And so a few months kind of passed. I had my parents stay with me for a period and kind of keep, kept praying. And I, I just simply began to say hello. Every time I came back from work and he was outside, hello, hi. <laughs> and after a while, things began to change. And I, one day I just said, oh, have you seen the World Cup? And it changed everything. <laughs> and it was incredible. The next thing I know, um, like, <laughs> it was just crazy. Um, he's helping me put lights in my car. I, you know, he beat me to it this year and get, giving me a Christmas card. Um, you know, picking up my parcels. And just complete change. And... Um, <laughs> At the time of this kind of like conflict, I, I really felt God say, I'm going to extend your boundaries. And I was like, <laughs> that's a really funny joke. I don't quite understand that. And spiritually, like that's what God does. It didn't happen physically. Well, it did actually. God began to speak to me about taking ownership over the street. Not only in prayer, but by talking to the council. And the next thing I know, I've got council rep. Residence Association, Housing Authority in my living room, <laughs> talking about the street and how to improve it. We set a date for a meeting in the Working Men's Club. Um, my neighbour was there, and he was the one giving the greatest feedback on what to do. He was there fighting the corner for the street. And half the guys there were drunk. There's <laughs> another story. But... I just wanted to share that because it it communicates that we don't have to live in a place of being a victim. Yeah? But as we partner with Jesus, we can see things happen and change. Um, Tina, where's Tina? There you are. You're up for just playing some keys? What I'm going to do is just, uh, we're going to pray, and then I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and just rest on us. Uh, we've had a word about unlocking into sonship. I think it would just be really good for us to allow the Holy Spirit just to speak. And as we do that, I mean, you might find that you want prayer as well, but let's just kind of for a few mo- moments, let's just allow the Holy Spirit to kind of meet with us.